Welcome to MHM Podcast Network on MovieHouseMemories.com. Podcast for pod people. Our feature presentation begins now. You're listening to Lunchtime Movie Review from LunchtimeMovieReview.com. And we are the children of the 80s. All right, the children of the 80s are back with another film from our childhood. I'm Chris. I'm Patrick. And for this exciting episode, we are reviewing 1984's Star Trek III, The Wrath of Jim Ignatowski. <laughs> that, that's, that's the one you watched, wasn't it, Patrick? Yeah, that's the one. Uh, 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 <laughs> uh This was uh, directed by Spock's favorite director Leonard Nimoy and starring William Shatner surprise surprise Leonard Nimoy or maybe that's a spoiler right there uh DeForest Kelly James Doohan George Takai Walter Koenig man there's so many on this damn crew Michelle Nichols Christopher Lloyd and the most sensitive Klingon ever Dan Fielding but before we begin I've got a word from our sponsor. This podcast is sponsored by Hallmark's Forget-Me-Not Cards. For those times in your life when you've got something on your mind and you need to get it out before it kills you. Hallmark, we've got you covered. And Patrick, do you have a wacky summary for us this week? It's not wacky, but... Can you do it in the voice of Reverend Jim by any chance? I can't I can't do my very horrible impression for that long a period of time. So All right. Spock is dead, and a very somber Enterprise crew returns to Earth to lick their wounds. Survivors of the attacks by Khan, Nuni, and Singh mourn the loss of their friend and captain. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm losing my voice. When the Enterprise Choked reaches, up on Spock, huh? Well, it's emotional. Yes, I know. Just remembering that opening sequence, which was the end of the, the previous film, it just brings a tear to my eye. When the Enterprise reaches the space dock orbiting Earth, Admiral James T. Kirk is alerted that someone has broken into Spock's sealed quarters. Kirk investigates personally and finds his friend, Dr. Leonard McCoy, sitting in a dark corner of the room. McCoy asks Kirk why he left him on Genesis. Confused, Kirk asks McCoy what he's talking about, to which McCoy says simply, remember then he collapses into unconsciousness after mccoy is taken to sick bay kirk and his crew meet with the commander of starfleet admiral mar the admiral commends the crew for their service and awards them with extended shore leave he also reassigns commander montgomery scott to starfleet's newest ship the uss excelsior when scotty states that he would prefer when scotty states that he would prefer to oversee the refit of the very old uss enterprise the Admiral tells Scotty and Kirk that the Enterprise will be decommissioned. Additionally, the Admiral informs them that the entire crew is prohibited from discussing anything related to the newly created Genesis planet. Meanwhile, Kirk's son, Dr. David Marcus, and Lieutenant Savick are on board the USS Grissom orbiting Genesis. The two are assigned to investigate and study the unique planet that Dr. Marcus helped to create. 
While conducting their initial survey, they discovered that the planet has a large variety of climates. But more importantly, they discovered that the sensors are indicating life signs on the planet, something that should not have developed so quickly. Dr. Marcus and Savick beam down to the planet to investigate and discover a small Vulcan child that appears to be the resurrected body of Spock, whose casket soft-landed on the planet at the end of Star Trek II. Young Spock appears to have no memory. Dr. Marcus explains that to Savick that Spock and the Genesis planet may be aging quickly due to a shortcut that he implemented into the Genesis Matrix. Dr. Marcus indicates that the planet may destroy itself within a matter of hours. In orbit around Genesis, the Grissom is destroyed by a cloaked Klingon bird of prey warship under the command of Commander Krug. Krug intercepted information about the Genesis device and sees the experimental science as an effective weapon that he would like to acquire for the Klingon Empire. He has traveled to Genesis to gain additional intelligence about Genesis, including how to make a Genesis torpedo. With the crew of Grissom destroyed, Krug and some of the crew beam down to the planet and capture Dr. Marcus, Savick, and young Spock to extract the information they need. Back on Earth, Spock's father, Sarek, confronts Kirk about his son's death. Sarek is confused as to why Kirk did not return himself and Spock's body back to Vulcan so that Spock's Katra, or living spirit, could be preserved. When Kirk and Sarek watch the security videos, they discover that Spock transferred his Katra to McCoy, not Kirk. Sarek indicates that Spock's Katra and body are needed to lay him to rest on Vulcan, and without help, McCoy will either die or go insane. Kirk goes to Admiral Morrow and asks for permission to return to Genesis to save McCoy, but his request is denied. Kirk then decides to go anyways with the help of his crew. His crew secretly works to make the Enterprise automated so that minimal crew can operate the starship. Once McCoy is broken out of jail, Kirk, McCoy, Scotty, Chekhov, and Sulu steal the Enterprise and head off to the Genesis planet. Once the Enterprise reaches Genesis, the Klingon ship cloaks to prevent detection. However, Sulu has a sharp eye, and the Enterprise is not fooled by the cloaking device. When the Bird of Prey decloaks for its attack, the Enterprise is able to cripple the ship before it can damage the Enterprise. However, going into battle overloaded the condensed controls, and the Enterprise is unable to defend itself when the Klingons mount a minimal attack. With both ships dead in space, Krug threatens to kill his hostages on the planet if Kirk does not surrender his ship as well as any information about the Genesis device. To prove his sincerity, he has his men kill Kirk's son. Despondent over his loss, Kirk offers to surrender his ship to Krug, but not before getting the ship to self-destruct. The Enterprise crew then safely beams down to the planet, while most of the entirety of Krug's men are killed when the Enterprise explodes in orbit. Once on the planet, Kirk and the crew find and kill the Klingon officers guarding Savick and the now entirely adult Spock. With the planet deteriorating around him, Kirk lures Krug down to the planet with promises of the Genesis information. Once Krug beams down, he has his last remaining officer, Beam Savick, and the other Enterprise crew officers aboard the Klingon ship, leaving only Kirk, Spock, and Krug on the planet. Kirk and Krug engage in a round of fisticuffs, as required in any film starring William Shatner during the 70s and 80s, before Kirk kicks Krug into some hot liquid magma. Magma. Kirk, magma. 
Kirk impersonates Krug and has himself and Spock beamed on board the Klingon ship. After imprisoning the only remaining Klingon officer, the Enterprise sets course for Vulcan to save Spock and McCoy. Once on Vulcan, Spock and McCoy undergo an ancient and very dangerous procedure to reunite Spock's Katra with his living body. The ceremony is successful and McCoy is out of danger. Spock's body is alive and well, but Sarek tells Kirk that it may take some time for Spock's mind to heal. When Spock passes by Kirk, he stops to talk to his former captain. Spock begins to remember the last few minutes of his first life, but most importantly, remember Kirk's name is Jim. With all indications that Spock is going to be okay, his friends joyfully gather around him to celebrate, and the adventure continues. And that is Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. You know, fun factoid, I hear that that voyage home is going to be one whale of a time. Yeah. Um, Patrick, that sounded like a thrilling edge-of-your-seat film. How, how did this do in the theaters? All right. Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock was released on June 1st, 1984, the same day as Streets of Fire and Once Upon a Time in America, the same month as Gremlins, Ghostbusters, Under the Volcano, Karate Kid, Top Secret, Cannonball Run 2, and Chris's all-time favorite film, Rhinestone. Uh, made on a budget of $16 million, it grossed uh, over $76 million at the box office, making it the ninth highest grossing film of 1984, right behind Police Academy, Footloose, and Romancing the Stone, and right in front of Splash, Purple Rain, and Amadeus. Adjusted for inflation, that uh, figure of $76 million is about $199 million, just a hair away from $200 million in today's market. Of the 13 Star Trek films released to date, it is the 11th highest grossing film worldwide, Adjusted for inflation, however, it's actually the sixth highest grossing film worldwide. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes has it at 78% critics and 66% audience. And that is the numbers on Star Trek Three. Do you know how many times that uh, the Enterprise has been decommissioned at this point in the Star Trek filmology? Is this the first one? The filmology? Once. Okay. I feel like... Uh, I think that uh, they, they, they're supposed to be decommissioned at the end of Star Trek Six. My my memory is there something's always getting decommissioned and they're always stealing some sort of ship. So I I don't know. Yeah, they don't do that that often. <laughs> Maybe I just watch the same films over and over. Possibly that's very true. Yeah. Uh, did you see this one in the theater when it came out? I did. I very anxiously awaited this to come out in the theater. I actually even read the novelization before I saw it in the theater, uh, which is uh, very similar, but many other storylines. Yeah, I was excited uh, about this one, but it, it's funny. This is not one of my favorites of the series. I, I haven't seen this as many times as like The Voyage Home and even as slow-paced as the original one was. I think I've seen that many more times. And um, I do remember going to see it in June, and uh, but it wasn't opening weekend. But I, I wasn't really thrilled. I remember not being really thrilled when I left the theater. What were your first thoughts of it? I enjoyed it. I mean, there were things I liked about it. It 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 wasn't it wasn't Wrath of Khan, which is still one of my all time favorite Star Trek films. It is. I mean, that's between that and uh, the Undiscovered Country. Those two bounce back and forth as my favorite of the series of all Star Trek films. 
And, but this one always seemed to be, for a lack of a better term, cheap. And it wasn't. I mean, it was it was they had the same similar production budget to the Wrath of Khan, but it just it just seemed to be cheaply made to me. And I I, I, I it was very distinctly different. Um, I, I know as a kid, I was kind of like, well, they destroyed the Enterprise, <laughs> you know, kind of like that was more so than the characters as a child. The Enterprise was what I came to watch the show about, you know, the movies about. I loved the spaceship and the, the idea of living on the spaceship. And once that was destroyed, it was like I didn't see where the rest of the series could go, especially since essentially they were criminals at that point. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you know, we when we ultimately review Star Trek four, I can talk about how we have a little bit of whiteout. And we're just going to fix that problem real quick and get them all back to the status quo, uh, which is my one of my problems with Star Trek four. But I, at least I thought this challenged uh, the the viewers is that they're giving you something distinctly different. You took away a lot of the things that made Star Trek Star Trek. But I thought in a positive way, I liked the aspect of this uh, un um, unrelenting friendship between Kirk and Spock and even to a certain extent McCoy that he would sacrifice almost everything in his life to help his friend uh, and I, I I thought that spoke a lot about the friendship between those characters and as an adult I appreciate that storyline better um, as you know as an adult I have problems with some of the goofier things in the film but you know as a kid I really liked them did you have a problem with uh, the way they killed off his son to me, it's like, I I never liked him. So it bothered me as an, as a kid. Uh, and as an adult, I didn't bother me as an an adult. I mean, I thought it was, you went to such effort to show this rekindling of a father son relationship in star Trek two, the very end of star Trek two. And he's killed 60% of the way (laughs) through star Trek three before they really even have any time together. And, you know, that, I, I, it, it, I mean, it kind of pissed on one of the highlights of Star Trek II, um, but I, I didn't, once again, I didn't like the character. I never liked the son. So, uh, you know, the, I, I spoke to, you know, the, the, his whole relationship with the son in Star Trek II emphasized the theme of growing old and kind of feeling pass by useless, if you will, and him rekindling that friendship to be a heroic character, heroic character to his son, uh, in the face of the loss of his best friend, at least was an olive branch as a, 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 a shining light for Kirk at the end of that film. And I liked that aspect of it, but his son was a dick. (laughs) He was a dick through most of Star Trek too. Didn't have a lot of respect for his father. And I didn't, I didn't mourn his loss when he got killed in this film. I, you know, I, I'm to a certain extent, I'm surprised it's not, it wasn't Savick, uh, other than, you know, I read in the, the, you know, kind of studying for this film and kind of reading up on this, that they were, it was a coin, you know, almost a coin flip between Savick and David dying. And they ultimately, ultimately made David die because he's the one who took the shortcut, uh, for the Genesis matrix and put, uh, proto matter in there. Yeah, I, I thought it was cheap. He, they they um, pretty much relegated him to a red shirt in this film, I thought. Pretty much, yeah. This was the first directorial debut of Leonard Nimoy? Yes? Correct. This is his first film. Okay. 
Um, how did you, you said this kind of felt cheap, even though it wasn't, do you think that has to do with Leonard as his first time directing, or you think that was something else? I, I think it was a product of its day. Uh, Star Trek one was, there was more budget to Star Trek one and they did a lot of special effects, you know, pre primo special effects for Star Trek, the motion picture. They reused a lot of those special effects in Star Trek two and to go on the cheap. And then they created some additional special effects they needed for their uh, sequences in that in Star Trek three, you were going into uncharted territory. They didn't use, they didn't have a Klingon battle in the first two films. So they had to go redo the special effects. And I think that cut into the budgets as far as sets. I mean, obviously all the, all, all the planet Genesis is just a set piece and they had to build all those rather than go on location. And I would assume that that's going to be much uh, cheaper than going and shooting on location in that many different locales to cover that many different environments. So it always felt claustrophobic to me, uh, the entirety of the film. I never liked the, the look of Genesis back in the day and it holds up even worse today for me. Yeah. I mean, you saw, I mean, you see, Genesis at the end of Star Trek II, I mean, you're seeing daylight. That, that was an exterior shot. They filmed that outside. Mm -hmm. This was filmed, Every everything was a set. And so it just always felt, as I said, very claustrophobic. Always like I was in a building for the entirety of it, even when they're outdoors. Yeah, very much. Um, what did you think of, this one's also kind of always bothered me is, that, uh, what is Spock's father's name? Why did I just blank out? Sarek. You know, he just kind of comes in like, well, what do you mean you, you, uh, you shot him into space and didn't bring him home? Like, like how the hell are they supposed to know all the Vulcan traditions? You know, it, it, that kind of always kind of annoyed me. I know it's the MacGuffin for getting Spock back and for the whole film, but does that bother you at all that, uh, that uh, they didn't really know and you know now they got to go get them because they shouldn't have done it in the first place or no uh, it, it didn't bother me because the kind of the lore of vulcans is they're very private you know a society and culture you know they don't talk about you know spock doesn't talk about pond far back in the original series about having to have sex every seven years or he goes insane um, or possibly dies uh, you know, he doesn't tell Spock, he doesn't tell Kirk his, you know, frequently admitted best friend in the universe about his, you know, half brother, uh, Cybok, uh, until Star Trek five. Uh, so the, the, there's always an element of secrecy that goes along with the Vulcans that I think is consistent with that. Um, I, I think almost to an extent, and I always read it this way, that even though Sarek is angry with Kirk for not bringing his son's body home and bringing the Katra, is that, you know, it's a compliment that Sarek thought that Spock thought as much of Kirk uh, that as a friend that he would have trusted him with something so vital and so important that to, to kind of a compliment to Kirk that this is how I recognize the importance in my, uh, your importance in my son's life, which is not to be said of many other humans. I did like the fact that he was actually in McCoy's head instead, though. Almost mortal enemies in some ways. I, I, I think that, I mean, almost to a certain extent leads to some comedy. Mm -hmm. uh, but it, uh, it, I mean, it, you had, first of all, it, I think, <laughs> although it's, they're always the trio, I, I never, this 
was the first time I think that the, I always I think I ever saw McCoy as an equal of Kirk and Spock. You know that he was the 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 third leg of the tripod. Mm-hmm. Even during the series, they were always together uh, because he was the third lead. But he was always more of an extension of Kirk, and he kind of was a prodding of Spock. But this was the first time that you saw like there was a, a bond between Spock and McCoy that was equally as strong as the, the bond between Spock and Kirk. No, I agree with that completely. Definitely. Uh, let's talk about some Klingons. Reverend Jim uh, is the main, the main guy. And at this point, I think pretty much Christopher Lloyd was known mostly for Jim and Taxi, wasn't he? He'd done some other tel- you know, other movie stuff. He'd been in Going South with uh, uh, Jack Nicholson. He'd been in one, uh, one Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest with uh, Jack Nicholson. So he'd done some acting, but he, he was definitively in 19... 19- 1984 known for taxi. I mean that he had put his stamp on a thing. He's a year out from doc Brown. That's 1985. So the next year he explodes into the zeitgeist. And, and don't forget he parlayed this into his excellent role as John big Boutet in uh, Buckaroo Bonsai, which you hate <laughs> that film. I've never seen that film. So I don't never seen that film. Oh, I thought you just didn't like the film. No, I've never seen oh. that film. I enjoy the film, but um, it, it's a well, gem. I've seen, gotten it. <laughs> What's that? If I've seen it, I've completely forgotten it. Yeah. I, yeah. Well, that, it could be forgettable for some people. And then uh, Dan Fielding. <laughs> the, I, you know, uh, I think Night Court came out the same year, 1984. And um, John Larroquette played, what was his name, Maltz? Uh, the the sense I say sensitive Klingon, but uh, what did you? The, he's the one that stands out more to me in, in terms of being odd. But what did you think of John Larroquette as a Klingon? I mean, he has the height, and he's an extremely tall guy. Uh, he was not an unknown actor. He'd uh, done Stripes just a few years before. He wanted to be in this in in makeup and unrecognizable. Uh, so I mean, he was a fan of Star Trek. Uh, so uh, I, I got to give him credit for willing to take that on. Um, you know, I, I, my impression, although I know uh, Christopher Lloyd uh, is uh, considers this one of his favorite roles that he played. Um, he was, <laughs> I don't think he was a fan of Star Trek or was as familiar with Star Trek as he needed to be. Uh, so it's kind of an interesting contradiction. Um, but Night Court, uh, I was double checking. Night Court came out in September of 1984. So just a few months later is that he's playing that role on a regular basis. That's one of my favorite TV shows of the eighties. I might like it more than uh, cheers. I don't know about you. Yeah, I've uh, recently rewatched the first, I think three seasons of night court uh-huh. does not hold up. as like, you think it was granted. I have not watched uh, cheers. was one of my all time favorite films of the eighties and I have not rewatched most of that because my wife hates Cheers, loves Frasier, but hates Cheers, which is the irony of that. Um, uh, I have, because of that, I haven't, in like the last 10 or 15 years, watched a lot of Cheers, maybe an episode randomly here or there late at night. Maybe it's uh, Bull Shannon's sidekick that you don't like. It picks up after a couple of those old ladies die. <laughs> it does until they decide, let's just go young. <laughs> 
Okay, let's go again for a younger actress. Go young and sarcastic, and that's a gem. Uh, are there any actors you want to talk about in this film? Uh, well, the recasting is Savick. I mean, that was that the, the Kirstie Alley didn't return, and you had Robin Curtis come in and uh, play, uh, take over the role, uh, which she would do play again in Star Trek IV briefly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought that was an interesting because I liked Kirstie Alley as Savick. Uh, and I've, I've, you know, I've read to figure out why she didn't come back and I've read two different things. One was that she was afraid of being typecast in, you know, kind of in Star Trek, same as the primary actors. It was like, well, you weren't really that important. Uh, and, and two is that she, they didn't sign her. They didn't sign her for a multi-film deal that she, they signed her for just Star Trek two. And when they wanted her to come back, she had high, higher salary demands, even though she really wasn't doing a lot of big name stuff and they just said yeah you're not that important and they went and just recast the role i didn't miss her that i i thought she was good i i liked her i like her version of savic better than robin curtis's uh i i kind of i i like the, the the rapport that she has with uh kirk much more than it, and to be honest with you, you didn't have that really in this film i mean they were separated for the most of the film i think it would have been interesting though however because why i mentioned the novelization the novelization i remember as a kid and i have i've only read it once i read it right before i saw this film the novelization is uh david and her uh have a little torrid affair Mm. (laughs) and there's a lot of the book talking about them basically falling in love with each other so there's an emotional element of when he gets killed the effect on her uh that is not carried into the film at all and Savick was originally it was she was originally designed to come back in star trek six um but they re they rewrote the role so it wasn't Savick. it was going to be Savick who was going to be basically betraying the the crew to assassinate the klingon chancellor uh and fr- who fr- also framed kirk and spock instead of uh what's kim cattrall she was a mannequin in that one, right? Well, she was, but I think that would have been better because it would have been more shocking. Uh, as it was written in the film, I knew immediately that Kim Cattrall won because she was there, <laughs> but, and she was Kim Cattrall, who was a well-known actress. But two, they they didn't hide the fact that she was basically working with people. Uh, you know, it was it, it was not subtle. I think if you'd had Savick and you had this goodwill, that it would have been a little bit more of a betrayal, even for the audience. Mm. Honestly, I don't remember that film anymore. Oh, that's one of my favorites. Yeah. I can't wait to read that one. That one's a good one. Was Gene Roddenberry involved in this film that much? I know they had nope. issues with him butting in and they didn't like it, but uh, did he have any input in this one? Pretty much from this film on that they are, uh, it is all Harv Bennett that uh, he's not involved in any kind of story elements. Uh, he, uh, his, his, uh, attempt and grasp uh, back for Star Trek, uh, goes to Star Trek, the next generation, which becomes kind of what his vision of Star Trek was again, more of the, uh, explorer element that, you know, obviously starting with Star Trek two, which was where Harv Bennett kind of took control uh, it becomes more militaristic. I mean, fighting and, you know, that's what you have going on. You got to have some conflict in these summer blockbusters. 
Yeah, you, but you can have conflict in an exploratory way where everybody learns the lesson at the end. You know, Khan didn't learn a lesson. You know, he wanted he, a homicidal maniac who wanted to kill Kirk. Uh, you know, Krug didn't want to learn anything. He wanted to he wanted to build a, a stronger Klingon empire. And, you know, by the time you get to Star Trek Six, you know, that there's uh, yeah, they're, they're very much is it's all about the war element or, or the threat of war. Uh, although I think it's a good allegory to the end of the, the fall of the, the Soviets uh, in the end of the eighties. I don't think they want to know what happens 40 years later. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm waiting to see that film. Yeah. That's a, not good. Um, <laughs> go to invade the Romulans. <laughs> it's not an invasion. It's a it's two week incursion. All right, let's go around the table. I don't have much more to say about this one. After all said and done, uh, what do you think of the film? Does it stand the test of time? Yeah, I I, I do. I, I think it does stand the test of time. As much as I sit here and say it's uh, it was it was made on the cheap, uh, it doesn't seem to have the production values of the previous two films. Um, it's not bad. It's, I still find it entertaining. There are things I like about it. The theft of the enterprise, I still think is a great scene, great dramatic scene. Uh, and I, and I like a lot of the dialogue. I like the story elements, uh, between Kirk Spock and McCoy. You know, there's, there's little tiny things that I don't like, you know, the joke of don't call me tiny. It's like, yeah, all right. I don't fucking like that joke. Uh, um, I don't, I, I honestly don't really care for Christopher Lloyd as a Klingon. Uh, I can't set him apart from that. He's too much Doc Brown or uh, Jim <laughs> for me. And it, he, it distracts. It really, like John Larricat, Larricat just blends in. You know, I, yeah. uh, other than I read he wanted to be in it and did this years ago, I would not have recognized him because he's unrecognizable. Uh, Christopher Lloyd's still recognizable and his voice is so recognizable that I just don't, I, I don't separate that, that, that to me is the kind of the weakness in the film. And I don't perceive him as a tough guy in any way, shape or form. He's never played really a tough in my opinion. And as a lead, a uh, lethal Klingon, I don't, I think he's wanting. Uh, so I, did, I, I don't like that element, but I would say it still holds the test of time. I think it, it still works well it's not as dull as star trek one it's not as action-packed as star trek two um and it's certainly not as funny or uh, comedy driven as star trek four uh but it does have little elements of all three of those things uh so uh it ultimately still works it's entertaining uh and i think it stands the test of time i don't think they're going to remake this one like they did with uh, star trek two into for to end of darkness well, I'm going to say it stands the test of time. This isn't my favorite of them. It's a solid C film. I'm not complaining. You know, it it is fun for what it is. Spock does not talk about LDS in this one. We'll have to save that for the next film. But uh, I, it's a pretty good popcorn fair film. And what was it? What were the films that came out at the same time? Streets of Fire? Streets of Fire. Fired once upon a time in America. I, this was definitely the one I saw. So yeah, I did not see either one of those other films in the theater. Although the other films that came out that month, Ghostbusters, Gremlins, Cannonball Run Two, I saw all those in the theater. Yeah, Cannonball Run Two for sure. Ghostbusters. We've reviewed almost all those films. Cannonball Run Two for sure. You say for sure? 
<laughs> I'm pretty sure I watched that in the theater. No, I saw it in the theater. I know I saw it in the theater, but it was it it was that was not a good film. No, I was hoping for more bleeds. Yeah, no, you didn't. You, you were severely disappointed. No bleeds. All right. Well, on that note, that's it for our review of Star Trek Three: The Search for Bleeds. Please let us know what you think of the film in the comments section. And for our listeners over on moviehousememories.com, rate it from one to five stars on that page as well. If you enjoyed today's review, please do not forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel, the MHM Podcast Network, where we have many, many more film reviews from yesterday, today, and beyond. Until the next time, I'm Chris. And I'm Patrick. We have to get out of here, and you guys and gals are invited. This podcast is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. The theme song for Lunchtime Movie Review, Fireworks, is brought to you by Alexander Nakarada at SerpentSoundStudios.com under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. All original content of this podcast is the intellectual property of Lunchtime Movie Review, the MHM Podcast Network, and Fuzzy Bunny Slippers Entertainment, LLC, unless otherwise noted.